Welcome everyone again to the broadcast. My name is Andrew, pastor here at Sanctuary Church. We are nine weeks into this quarantine. Man, I hope you are doing okay. Um, All of our prayers and thoughts uh, are with you guys. Uh, If you need anything, as always, please reach out. There's a bunch of different ways to do that. Um, We are right now wrapping up our second week of Feeding the Frontlines. We've seen 300 meals go out to frontline workers. Uh, We have seen over the past two months, thousands upon thousands of dollars come in and go out to meet the needs of uh, so many folks who are affected by this moment. Uh, I just wanted to take a moment just to say how proud I am of our church. Just unbelievably proud. Our church has been so outwardly focused in this season. Uh, it's been a- incredible just to see the way um, our community has been able to bless so many internally and, out and externally. Um, if you are, though, struggling to connect, uh, there's a bunch of ways to do that. And I want to highlight those real quick before I jump into the sermon today. One is our uh, midday prayer and connect time. It's from 12 to 1230, Monday to Friday. I'm on most of them, Pastor Rick or Pastor Sarah, Mike, a number of the leaders in our community are always on that call. Uh, and so you can find that Zoom link on our online page. And basically we take a few minutes to check in with whoever's on the call. If there's a lot of people, we'll do breakup rooms, uh, breakout rooms, and then we'll just take time to to pray and center our day and we'll go through some liturgy together. Uh, My wife and I, Corey and I do a parents meetup, uh, like a parents check-in every Sunday night, eight o'clock, bring a drink, bring a treat, come and join us. It's very little content. It's just time for us to check in with one another, see how we're doing, share wins, losses. It's just a great time of camaraderie with other parents who are going through probably what you're going through as well. Uh, Our home groups, um, home churches, all of our online groups uh, are happening. Uh, There's in a funny way this season, uh, we've seen more people involved, more people engaged uh, than ever in our home groups. And I think it's just been an important season uh, for so many to be able to talk, to vent, to share, to be prayed for, to give feedback, to wrestle with what we're talking about in the sermons. Uh, So I just encourage you, if you're not connected with one of those, to get involved with the group. All that can happen on our website Uh, All that said, we just want to say we're trying to be here for you in any way and in every way that we can be. So please let us know how we can um, just continue to serve you and and let us know um, the places where you want to join our team, be all in and help serve our city together. So we're going to jump into our text today. Uh, The first text we're going to look at is Matthew 5. And this is a pretty pivotal uh, moment in Jesus's ministry. Uh, In the beginning of Matthew, Jesus gives us um, this manifesto for the kingdom, manifesto for this um, new world breaking forth in the middle of this one. Uh, The text reads like this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, these large crowds, uh, these people in society were deemed essentially, these were the exceedingly broken or at best, uh, one scholar says, they were the exceedingly plain. Uh, and in the midst of this very ragtag group, this mess of humanity, um, this like rural kind of backwoods area that Jesus did a lot of healing and preaching in, he goes up on the mountainside and begins to teach. And he leads, he opens the manifesto with this, this just this widespread of humanity. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're gonna start here today. Let me pray for us. 
Lord Jesus, uh, we believe that in some beautiful, powerful, mysterious way, Lord, you reside with us and in our midst whenever just a few of us are gathered. Um, Lord, there's something powerful um, about your presence with us that uh, you illuminate and you encourage. Lord, you use um, the text uh, that we're going to be reading, Lord, to um, uh, to strengthen our faith, um, to... Uh, to help make sense of how to walk all of this out, Lord. And so we just pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see you in our ears, Lord, that we'd hear you in our hearts, Lord, that we would know you more. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray, amen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So first off, this word blessed, it's... um. I don't know. It's like a divine, I am with you. Uh, like shorthand without getting a real technical out of the gate here. It's a, I'm on your side. It's fortunate are you because God is with you. He says, fortunate are the poor in spirit because God is in some way with you. Now, to be clear, the poor in spirit is a negative term. Like these are the morally bankrupt. These are the lame, the out of it. The poor in spirit, to be clear, is not a good term. It's not a condition that we're trying to attain. It's not uh, blessed are those who know how much they need God even. <clears throat> There's nothing praiseworthy or honorable or positive about being poor in spirit. And Jesus is making an announcement. It's like important to understand this. He's not giving any instructions here. It's not, here's how to get God's blessing. It's not, here's what you need to do. He begins this epic manifesto about what heaven on earth can look like, about what this new humanity will look like. And he begins it with an announcement that God is with the poor in spirit. The idea that God was somehow with these people in Jesus and with us now is actually first talked about in the Christmas story. Jesus is given the name Emmanuel, which means literally God with us. Central to this story is that God's not distant or detached or indifferent uh, to our pain. He's not uninterested in our condition or uninvolved uh, with our very real struggles in this world, but instead he's present among us. So when we talk about Jesus being somehow divine and human, what we're saying is that Jesus in a unique and singular and historic way shows us what God is like. God with us. Now, I wanna stop here for a quick second because if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're part of this community even, you may be tempted at this point to check out. You're like, yeah, 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 of course, of course, I know this. I want you more than ever, if you would, if you would do this for me, to lean in more than you've ever leaned in with the even the assumption that, yeah, you've heard maybe some of this before, but that more than ever, we need to be reminded of this now. God with us. Now, my, my friend John stopped by the other day to bring uh, my wife and I, my family, food. Uh, just out of nowhere, brought, this, brought us this amazing meal. Now, I love this guy. I don't know if you have a friend like this, because he makes me, and for those of you who know me, know this isn't me, appear calm and appear even. Um, he is so passionate and fired up and loud and in your face, like in the best way, all of the time. Now, John hung around and we got to talking and that happens a lot. We just keep talking and then he just keeps talking and talking. And, and then he just, it's just, it's, 
it's all unexpected. You're waiting for that moment where you're like, all right, buddy, all right, buddy. And he just, he keeps going and you're just somehow more blessed by his presence and more into whatever he's talking about. And I love it. And so even like right there on the sidewalk, like six feet away, he like blesses our family and prays over us, like right in the middle of the road, like unexpected and purposeful. I don't know if you've ever had somebody show up at your house unexpectedly. Maybe it's around dinner time and you're just getting ready to sit down and eat and you hear the doorbell and you open it up and it's a friend of yours and you're like, hey. And they're like, hey, I'm here. I'm like, great, hi. And you're frantically searching through your brain, trying to remember if you invited this friend over and just forgot about it. And finally you ask, uh, like you build up the courage to ask, why are you here And they just respond, what do you mean? Like, I'm just here. You're just here. Well, my family, we're sitting down to dinner, but, and they're like, cool, cool. Uh, Like, so you just came to eat? No, 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 I just came to be here. Right, this scenario would be strange and awkward. Like, people don't really do this. John didn't just come over to just be with us. I say all this to set up the question, why is Jesus with us? I think some of us can get behind the idea that God, the universe, the divine is somehow with us in like some abstract way. But I think we might have a hard time answering the question, why? And see, the Bible tells us emphatically that God is with us because God's for us. To rescue, to forgive, to provide, to empower, all sorts of things. But God is a father who is for us. Romans 8, 31 to 32 says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Now, before we get into this idea, I need to share a little preface with you. Let me first say that when I talk about God being for us, I'm not talking about guarantees or surefire ways to stay healthy and have lots of friends and drive a good car and keep up with the whoever's. Like when when I talk about flourishing and I talk about thriving, I'm talking about something way more profound and way more enduring and meaningful and satisfying. And we'll get to that in a minute. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who don't have it all together. At the heart of what Jesus teaches us about God is an unexpected idea that cuts against so many of the dominant ways we've all come to believe about how the world works. Jesus announces God's blessing on those who are lacking, who don't have it all together, who are very aware of how they don't measure up. And I love to talk about this because over the years as a pastor, I've interacted with so many people who are operating under the conviction that if they could just get better, more moral, more disciplined, more spiritual, more kind, courageous, or whatever religious jargon is thrown at them, then they would be in or accepted or embraced or validated or affirmed by God. And I don't blame them for this. It's, this is actually how our world operates. Like forget religion for a minute. Like your status is determined by your station, your accomplishments. 
status anxiety. It's like a name is it, this is like a real thing that re, as it relates to people. It's like rooted in comparison and keeps us from contentment and healthy motivation. Jesus says, your status, your station is that you are a loved child of God, adopted, blessed. Jesus says, God is for you. God doesn't operate on a point system. God's grace is not fair in the best possible way. God doesn't wait for us to get it all together. Maybe you've heard this, for God so loved you that he came. For God so loved you. And there's no pressure here, it's love. This is love means you can, you can walk away. You can choose to not take hold of it. But when you do, when you do, something begins to happen. And when you do over and over and over again, when you take hold of that love, when you trust this reality, something happens. Look. I've been a follower of Jesus who's heard messages like this all of my life. That's why I threw out that little preface to you earlier. Like, hey, I know you may have heard some of this before. Just lean in though, especially. Because this for me doesn't seem to get old. In fact, it's in seasons um, that I would subconsciously say, I don't really need God to be for me, that I usually most need to be reminded of it. Like it will lift you up change you. It will release something in you, trusting that God is for you. That whatever, if you're listening out there and you're not a follower of Jesus, like the divine, the otherness, like that that is somehow personal, not disconnected. It calls you to a major change in thinking, if this is true. It's a shift in understanding it's a massive leap in terms of how you even see yourself, this idea that God could be for you. I think if, if it didn't, you'd be stuck in the same old points program trying to earn what's already yours. You see, why Jesus often begins his teachings by saying repent is because repent means, in short, to change your thinking, to see things in a new way or to turn around, to have your mind renewed. Now, all this reminds me uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, my friend tells uh, a story about being in an AA meeting and he's listening to people tell their stories. And he said, all of a sudden, the gears in his mind start to turn faster and faster and faster because he's trying to figure out what it is about this meeting. He's somebody, he's a pastor. He's been in all sorts of meetings and gatherings. He says, what is it about this meeting that is so different from any other gathering that he'd been in? And he comes to the conclusion that, that what was special about this space was the complete and utter lack of BS. The first of the uh, 12 recovery steps is all about admitting your powerlessness. And he's in a room full of people just admitting. Admitting demands honesty. Admitting requires like a ruthless assessment of your condition. Admitting is what happens when you have no energy left to pretend. When you're done playing games, when you no longer care what other people think, when you've come to the end of yourself, when you're ready to embrace the truth that you need help and that on your own, you're in serious trouble because you've made a mess of things or you can see you're about to. See, in an AA meeting, you can really see just how much time and energy and effort we expend making sure that everybody knows how strong and smart and quick and competent and capable and together and good we are. 
it's hard to see just how much that posturing consumes us until you're in a room where it's not there. A room where people are simply admitting. Our need to control how others see us is like a, a God that we've been bowing down to for so long and we didn't realize it. But in an AA meeting, no one has energy left for that sort of thing. You just come face to face with yourself as you truly are. And when you come to the end of yourself, you're at the exact moment in the kind of place where you can fully experience the God who is for you. I have a friend uh, who's really good at reminding me just how religious he isn't. And he was telling me about some things in his life that were falling apart. It's really hard how stressed and anxious and depressed and fearful he's been and how all he could do was pray even though he doesn't pray. Why do people who don't pray pray when their back's against the wall? I share that with you because to experience like the beauty and life that comes from trusting the God who is for us, we first have to talk about our deep down intuitive awareness that we need help. I know, I know this idea of needing saving doesn't really line up with the dominant like cultural voices in our world. Like they're all insisting that the answer to our problems is, is us, is, is you, there's no one else out there. And then if we don't fix things ourselves, there are no other options. I get that some of this can sound, um, I don't know, I get that that sounds, I guess, like reasonable and it sounds empowering and it sounds free from religious superstition. But what we actually run into in our day-to-day lives, if we're honest, if, if we're honest, I really believe this, it is endless, the endless struggles that we need help with if we're gonna survive, like much less thrive because on our own, we know that we're powerless. I mean, I know for a fact that what this moment is teaching a lot of you is that you're, you're powerless. We're all having these apocalyptic moments when we look at shelves in the supermarket where there's no bread or pasta or all of a sudden the steak tips are gone. It's like if those small moments we realize how little control we have, there are much more serious things going on in our world. From lying to anger to addiction to the inability to forgive to overwhelming helplessness, in the face of this tragedy or anything else that's been happening in your life, to the constant anxiety that won't go away, to the haunting sense that you're not good enough no matter how hard you work and what you achieve. See, when we're talking about the God who is for us, we're talking about the very real sense that we, um, that we have, that we do not on our own have everything we need and we are not on our own everything that we could be. And it's there. It is there in that place, like naming it and owning it and facing it and going around the room, like admitting our powerlessness that we discover the God who's been for us. 
Jesus shows us this, again, flesh and blood in real time. And all these stories in the scripture, he touches lepers who no one else will touch. He hears the cry of the blind people who've been told to keep quiet. He dines with tax collectors whom everybody hated. He talks to very thirsty, very loose Samaritan women that he was not supposed to talk to. Over and over again, we see him going to the edges, to the margins, to those who are troubled and despised, those that no one else would touch those who were ignored, the weak, the blind, the lame, the lost, the losers, and he moves towards them. And so one of the questions I've had this week in preparing some of this is what does this reality do to my psyche in quarantine? Like in my fears or pride or insecurity or the endless like fear-driven news cycle and my distraction and my bad habits, what does the reality that God is for me do? I think in this moment, more than ever, followers of Jesus have to remember this posture that God has, the posture of God. Ever thought about the posture of God? What does the posture of a parent that's for you look like? We know the stats of the parents that are, parents that are supportive, what that does to a child. What does the posture look like? Turn with me, uh, if you would, to Numbers. Didn't see that coming, did you? Number six. It's a Bible joke for all the Bible people out there. Number six, 22. The context here uh, is that there's these chosen people people chosen by God, this Hebrew tribe, there'd be a blessing to the world. Uh, and they are like on this rescue operation of renewing all the things, um, all renewing all things. Um, they've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They've been given the law, God's dwelling with them. And they are like ready to move into the unknown. And in verse 22, we read, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. So these are the Lord's words to the priests who are going to tell the, the, the people this important thing. This is how they're going to bless them. And we read, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Lord bless you, keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. I wanna walk through this really quick because I think we get some insight even in this passage that, that wildly predates Jesus a little bit about what God is like and his posture being for us, what that looks like. The Lord bless you. This word bless here is Barak and it has the idea of bringing a gift to another while kneeling, which is brilliant. It's like a father kneeling down to give to his children. Uh, the extended meaning of this word, word is like to, get, to do or give something of value to another. It's like, may God's full expectation for you be fulfilled in your life. It's to speak the intention of God. And we know God's intentions for people are good. It's this projection of good into the life of these people. All right, the next line, and keep you. So the Hebrews uh, were a nomadic people raising livestock. It would not be strange for a shepherd to be out with his flock away from the camp overnight. So to protect the flock, the shepherd would build a fence of thorn bushes 
So the shepherd would guard over the flock and the fence would be a hedge of protection around them. The Hebrew word for thorn is derived from the word here, keep, literally meaning again to guard or to protect or to watch over. We find this word three times in Psalm 121. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. We find it in Genesis and the context here is attending as well as protecting a garden. So it carries with this, like the Lord is gonna will keep you, this flourishing and, and guarding. This is what the God who is for you is like. Next line, may, may his face shine upon you. May his face shine upon you. Uh, when I come home from a work day and my 10-month-old, who, let me be clear, um, has no special gifts, talents, or abilities outside of consistently needing to eat and consistently filling a diaper, um, I... I can't help but just beam every time I see her. I smile and she's done nothing but just look at me. This, this word here uh, for face is this word panim. Uh, it, it can also mean like countenance or presence. Think of how a person's face just lights up when they see a loved one. We could literally translate this, may God smile at you. It communicates God's affection and pleasure as well as his presence. The prayer goes on. May the Lord be gracious to you. Uh, This Hebrew word here is the same uh, word for grace and it denotes God's desire just to rescue and forgive sin and show favor to the undeserving. These echoes of blessed are the poor in spirit. May God turn his face toward you. Um, in my house, um, we have this uh, silent war going on. Um, when I want to talk to Corey about something like meaningful, and by meaningful, I usually mean like I want to explain like some film I've watched or some song and why it's great or some like little intricacies about something I'm nerding out about. I get incredibly frustrated um, when I'm telling her something and she's not just staring at me, looking me in the face as I tell her this. Um, she wants to be productive as I tell her things. She returns fire with this sort of annoyance that I have sometimes. I'm like, hey, will you just please stop like going around? She's like, I can hear you, I can hear you, I can hear you. I'm like, okay, 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 okay. Well, she returns fire with every time she starts to talk to me, I somehow have an awful habit of somehow my face will turn to my phone. I'm definitely still and always listening. But she will quickly just stop and go, okay, I can wait until I put my phone down. Well, may the Lord turn his face toward you. This ancient expression describes God giving his full and complete attention to us. It carries with this, all of this amazing loaded language around like listening deeply to someone. It communicates like a readiness to help. You have, apparently you have God's attention. What would this do to your heart if you could trust this just a little bit more in this season. And then lastly, and give you peace. The Hebrew word here is shalom. We've talked a lot about this over the years. It's broader than our word for peace. Peace in our world just means sort of lack of conflict. Shalom is ultimately about wholeness. 
It's peace with God and peace with others and peace with creation and peace with yourself. Whenever you see the word peace in the scriptures, it's not just things are without conflict. It's wholeness and completeness. It's everything being in its right place. God spoke to Moses. He said, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the people. Say to them, say to them. And then he offers this unbelievable blessing. He says, bless them by telling them my intentions for them. I will help them flourish. I will smile upon them. I will save and forgive and be merciful with them. Let them know they have my attention and I will provide what they need. Back to Jesus, he says, trust me, trust this good news. Look at me and know what God's like. Know that God is truly for you. Know this, allow that to shape you and form you and spur you on to love and good deeds. Few people are motivated to be all that they can be from a place of shame or guilt or a posture of withholding something good. This is why remembering and recalling that God is for you always needs to come first in your day or first in your thoughts on God. Before correction, before Monday motivation, before confession, before disciplines or practices that you can do, we have to remember what God's done for you, who he is and his heart for you. I'm always reminding my six-year-old, look, you're in trouble because I'm for you. <laughs> she doesn't quite get it. Like I, you're getting corrected right now because I love you. I'm going to let you experience the natural consequences of your foolishness because it will help you in the long run because I'm for you. I need you to work on that, Harper, because I'm for you, not to earn my love at all. So no, no, trust that if you don't have it all together, if you've run out of strength, if you've run out of ideas or willpower or resolve or energy, if you ache because of how severely out of whack the world is, if you stumble and trip and fall in the same place again and again, if you on a regular basis have a dark day in which despair seems to be a step behind you wherever you go, you are blessed. Blessed are you for God's with you. God's on your side. God's in that place, ready to invite you to take the next step. I have found in my personal walk with God, as I've spent years now, like looking at the scriptures, that God rarely seems to give a detailed map of the future. Instead, God gives us an identity. He says, this is who you are. And, and, and then he gives us the next step, go and do this. The longer I, I follow Jesus, the more that seems to be enough. Because if God's for us, who can be against us?